Who is James Mendes Hodes? Martial artist, cultural consultant, game designer? Well, when I was last at the Breakout Con here in Toronto, he was the person everyone kept telling me to talk to. And how lucky I was that he was excited to sit down and talk to me as well. In our next chapter of Meet the Makers, you're going to get to meet James Mendes Hodes. He's written for The Seventh Sea, he's written for Scion, he wrote for the supplemental material on Urban Shadows, as well as putting out some fun games of his own. He also writes a lot on how to make our games more accessible, more approachable, to bring down those gates that keep people out, to make sure that everyone at our table is having a good time. But we just met for the very first time, so I just had to ask him the first question to get things going. Who is James Mendez Hodes? Hi, I'm James Mendez Hodes. Most people call me Mendez because you already know a bunch of nerds named James. Uh, and I am an analog game uh, writer, editor, developer, and cultural consultant. I blog about race and religion in games at jamesmendezhodes.com. I'm on Twitter at uh, Lula Vampiro. And games I've worked on. The best-known ones are probably Seventh Sea and Scion, and then I kickstarted a game recently called Thousand Arrows, which is an apocalypse world hack about the Japanese Warring States period. And uh, we actually were playing uh, Scion uh, as part of a, a requested private game that uh, our Patreon supporters picked up. So they, they, one of their tiers is we'll run a game for them on the weekends, and and, and they're like, you got to do Scion. We we were part of the Scion Second Edition Kickstarter. Oh, wonderful! Uh, yeah. we, we we got to play the game for that, and. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of a nice little parallel here as we're talking. Um, oh, what, what's up? What caught you started with tabletop gaming and, and, and brought you into the hobby? So I started gaming in college because my college roommate was really into the old World of Darkness games. So, so yes, yeah, so that, was, that was a while ago. I started GMing pretty quickly. I just sort of took to it pretty fast. And then... As I went through college and grad school and struggled to find work, uh, eventually it kind of tripped and fell into the industry after going to a lot of conventions and volunteering to GM a lot. And uh, I've also done some professional GMing, um, mostly for kids. And I have an old Tumblr that I I blog about the stuff that they... I don't really blog about the stuff that they do. I transcribe the stuff that they do without any edits or a lot of commentary. <laughs> and it's funny because of them, not because of me. Yeah, I'm going to migrate that to my blog soon, hopefully. But that's at uh, dungeon-elementary.tumblr.com. So that was like kind of my first professional gaming experience. And then the first game I ever worked on was Urban Shadows in 2014. I just I, picked up the book right now. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm in, the, I'm in the supplement. I'm in Dark Streets. I wrote the Manhattan, Bronx, and Staten Island settings. But yeah, people ask me sometimes how I wound up as a full-time game designer. And I say, I kind of tripped and fell into it. It sounds like a common origin story for a lot of people where uh, they, they either took an invitation to GDC and then were, or not GDC, that's the other convention, to Gen Con. Yes. And then found themselves at a table with other developers, dropped some ideas, and everyone started workshop. And then they got a Kickstarter going on, and now they're a game developer. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and things snowball into uh, finding yourself in here. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things about uh, game design as an industry that's really wonderful networking is so intimidating in so many different fields and you have to follow such strict protocols and be a very specific person to succeed at that in game design people really want you to succeed and they want you to have they want you to be a game designer and i think that 
maybe it's just the people I hang out with, but I feel like my whole time in game design, everybody really wanted me to succeed and to feel and to feel like I belonged. And so it's not a unique feeling that I'm seeing here at Breakout, that this camaraderie, this family feeling that I see with all the other developers that are here is is something that's indicative to to the industry at, that at least is your experience definitely and there there are vast swaths of the industry still i'd say probably most of the industry which is unfriendly and intimidating and gatekeeping but if you if you want to feel like you belong there are people out there who you can find who will help you feel that way and I think Breakout is a, a really good example of that kind of culture, that kind of community. Um, Big Bad Con is another uh, is another great one in Walnut Creek, California. And yeah, every con has issues, and there's always we're still really struggling with a lot of issues of race and religion and re- representation and gender. But people want you to to feel at home here, and they will help you. They will help you do that, and you don't have to. At least in a community like this, it's still it's still difficult. There's still some struggle, but you will have help. For someone running at, at their table and bringing friends into uh, into their games, uh, what are some considerations you would offer for for both GMs and players to have in mind that they might not consider either from their own personal privileges uh, when they're being part of these games to help make these games a home and a place that is is welcoming to to every player that might sit beside them. I think that broadening the spectrum of what you consider to be gaming and who you consider to be a gamer uh, is a really important process. And the simplest, the simplest way, I'd say, to, uh, to broaden your perspective is uh, to play more different games. You don't necessarily have to spend a lot of money on them because there's a lot of really, really good, I'd say even like essential, pivotal stuff out there that's free um, that will help you accomplish this. Um, but broadening your perspective beyond just Dungeons and & Dragons and Call of Cthulhu, which come from like really, in, in a lot of ways, like hidebound uh, or Eurocentric paradigms, and looking at other stuff that's out there like Steal Away Jordan and Starcrossed and Dog Eat Dog, will really help you see gaming the way that people who aren't you see it. Um, and I understand, you know, uh, it's a conversation that uh, happens a lot here at Breakout of, of Dungeons and Dragons versus everything else. Mm-hmm. D&D is what it is. It's the largest game in the world yeah. uh, when it comes to it comes to this hobby. Yeah. But, I do but enjoy, go- enjoy sure. D&D sometimes. And, yeah. and it's not a, 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 an either or, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, having... The exposure to other games and other uh, perspectives and, and, and developers and mechanics, when you return to that Dungeons and Dragons game eventually, you bring with you questions to ask your game as well. Uh, yeah. And and it does. I have found that it's made those experiences when I return to those traditional games um, better. Yes. Uh, yes, definitely. Playing playing other games in other paradigms, and I definitely start with like simple free stuff like Lady Blackbird or Lasers and Feelings. Playing that kind of stuff, seeing how that works, and then coming back to Dungeons and Dragons will. It doesn't just show you the holes in Dungeons and Dragons. It also will highlight the things that Dungeons and Dragons does well, and the things that Dungeons and Dragons specializes in. I think that every game can be better uh, for by virtue of. Uh, of being played with people who have played lots of other games and who have lots of other kinds of experiences. And I think that also extends to playing games with people who aren't gamers. A lot of my gaming experience, especially with children, but also with adults, has been with people who don't have any prior familiarity with role-playing games. And those are some of my favorite games because uh, people bring perspectives and people make 
assumptions and drawn skills that you might not be used to if you just live in the same gaming culture all the time. That can be really, really validating and show you a lot of things about like assumptions that you make about the world and about your community that you otherwise wouldn't have thought of. So would you consider like approaching these games as collaborative stories and bringing like if 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 a tabletop RPG is like the term that a barrier. Oh, that sounds too overwhelming, and I can never learn the rules and get in. And and, and bringing people it's just we're telling a story together. And whether you see yourself as someone who's a gamer or not, the idea of you know we can still tell stories, and mm-hmm. stories still resonate. And 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 having this ability to I don't know how the game's going to end, even if I'm running it, and you don't know how the game's going to end as as a player. But together we discover that together. Through 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 play, um, sometimes that works well for me, and it's it's something that I almost always go to when I'm explaining tabletop role playing to new people. This happened uh, recently, actually. I've been trying to recruit more cultural consultants uh, from different kinds of backgrounds so that I can expand my network. Um, and a lot of them, uh, one of them especially, was um, a little bit older, and he had no prior familiarity with anything except for, you know, popular board games or card games, you know, like, uh, you know, like poker and Monopoly, that kind of thing. Cribbage and and things like that. Yeah. And so even explaining those things to him as collaborative storytelling, he, he understood what the words, he understood what the words meant, but he still, he, he was, he still made it clear that he was like struggling with the meaning behind them. And, that made me realize that it, it wasn't just enough to to go to collaborative storytelling. The process of explaining what games are all about to someone is actually really personal to that person. And very often I have to kind of reach into their experience and find the things about what their what matters to them that I think will that I think will resonate and that I think they'll be able to draw on. And sometimes that's genre, right? Because there's lots of people who are into speculative fiction, uh, you know, science fiction, fantasy, whatever. And so if you talk about uh, role playing as a way for them to engage in that genre that they're already invested in, that's going to be uh, a quicker way to get their engagement than uh, than going to collaborative storytelling. Uh, co- the collaborative storytelling aspect works really, really well with theater people. And anyone who already anyone who already has that instinct, people who do improv, uh, people who did like even just a little bit of theater in high school, they'll latch on immediately to that collaborative storytelling description, and that will really resonate with them. And then I've also met people who um, maybe they have a lot of they have a lot of familiarity with video games, for example. And so with those people, even if I even if I want to introduce them to a different kind of paradigm of role playing, I sometimes have to explain like some of the like technical details of the like the system of D&D and explain like hey this has hit points and character classes that you might have seen in JRPGs so for some people actually going into the kind of stuff that I find a little bit uh, like intimidating as mostly an indie gamer like going into that stuff for those for that particular group is actually going to give me better results than talking about the collaborative storytelling stuff. So yeah, like being able to tailor my explanation to the person that I'm talking to yeah. um, is really important. Reminds me, there was a period when like World of Warcraft was huge and it was MMOs in the mid 2000s were everywhere. That bringing someone into a tabletop game like Dungeons and Dragons Fourth Edition was also coming out at the same time. Even though I didn't like Fourth Edition, I found my friends who were into WoW did because it was speaking that kind of language with the way powers worked and and numbers and experience was very much running parallel to the video game terms that were happening at the same time. 
and uh, it was, it was you know, just what you just said there just kind of sparked that memory. Yeah, and that's what I really appreciated about 4th edition. Like, I don't have a lot of personal investment in Dungeons & Dragons, and there's not really a thing that I need Dungeons & Dragons to be, because I, I know a lot of other games that mm-hmm. are already the thing that I want them to be, and I can feel satisfied there, but... Dungeons and Dragons 4th edition did something so weird and so specific that I could never really have predicted that role-playing games could look like that. And I like 5th edition better. Ultimately, I I like the, you know, the slightly more flexible paradigm than like the combat-focused stuff in 4E, but 4E was highly specialized, and that's something that I think is a real attraction to me in gaming. If someone describes their game to me, and I'm like, well, what's it about? What's it do? And they say, well, it can do anything. Now I have choice paralysis, and there's so many other games out there which say they can do everything, and they don't actually. Um, But if someone tells me, like, oh, my game does one really specific thing. It does telenovelas, and just telenovelas. And that's that's the whole purpose of... I'm thinking of Pasión de las Pasiones by Brandon Lee and Gabetta. Um, if someone tells me, like, it does this extremely, extremely specific thing and it does it really well, that's, like, for me personally, that's what's most exciting to me in finding new games. We, re- we, we, we've played Masks on the show a few times, and uh, a friend of mine then picked up the game and was playing it and was wanting to introduce it to his table, and then started coming at me with a bunch of questions of, well, what do I do if I want to have characters die? Or what do I do about having... And he kept asking a bunch of questions about what the game is not. Yeah. And, and, and I well, maybe there's a different game that will work, because these games are written to be you know good at what they want to be and honest about what they're not and yeah. and buy into that and if you don't want to play uh that genre uh or you don't want to play with that uh that purpose in mind either it be uh, a, a cyberpunk game like the sprawl or, or teen titan style game like yeah. masks or uh, the gothic horror feminine horror of bluebeard's bride sometimes it trying to make the game to do something it's not can dilute the experience of what that game is trying to do. Yeah, and it's it, it you end up stressing about it when it might be easier to like reach out and find something else. And yeah, like cost is a concern here. And if you're if you're looking for a superhero game and the thing that you really want like an adult supers thing that gets into like the details of powers, something like Sentinel Comics or Marvel Heroic and uh, you wind up with masks yeah, you're you're gonna feel uh, you're gonna feel like this. It's a missed yeah. opportunity. Masks is about your emotions and about growing as a person, and, yeah. and death is not a stake on the table. You dealing with your anger is, and yeah. it, it is it's 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 a, trying to accomplish a different kind of story than recreating Infinity War. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I love it for that, and that's why I end up running masks at every single convention I go to, whether or not I planned that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's also like I, I, I do really enjoy that because it's one of the easiest things for me to run now because I have this giant roster of like superheroes and supervillains from previous masks games that I can just go back to for yeah, anything. You, you find you find that uh, we had new Cleopatra was uh, was this uh, very golden age tropey character who's just this nuclear powered Cleopatra villain. That uh, is amazing. And I like, like I like puns, but I really like portmanteaus. <laughs> so that's it. So that, that that's it. We're just using this. She shows up, and 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 the and the, the origin battle always happens at the Museum of Natural History, and trying to bring things through time to continue to build her empire. And oh, that's what's up. Oh. It's just it's over. And and I and I use that every time now. And and uh, and as new villains are introduced by my players, I just write them all down. And I just 
build my Rolodex. Yeah, it's great. And I can have, like, you know, I just need to, to pull a villain out of a hat. Um, I can use one of my previous PCs. I can use somebody else's previous PC. It just, it becomes so easy because instead of, instead of GMing by having a plot or having a plan, I GM by having uh, people who I can understand and like people who I feel like I know uh, and I can rely on those and you know I'm this big advocate of like don't prep anything your players can't derail your plot if you never had one that kind of thing but it doesn't mean that I do I do no preparation or it doesn't mean that the improvisation it's, it's that a I do kind is kind of preparation yeah yeah there's still there's still a lot of structure to it and it's it's learning uh, it's learning agenda and principles versus drawing out maps and and having my my traps and monsters and treasures all planned out in advance. It's it's building a, a sandbox and finding where where are my borders? Where do I my overall arc? Yeah. Maybe that's going to happen whether or not my players are interested in it, mm-hmm. and and then and then letting them run off into it. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that I don't like the highly prepared like overwritten style i actually do really like that um and games I, can be a lot of fun yeah and they become puzzles and challenges to overcome yeah and i like i can get really really into it it's just that if i start doing that then like i'll look down i'll start making maps and i'll start writing up plots and then i'll look back up and three days have gone by and i haven't eaten and <laughs> <laughs> so like so i have to i have to be careful about that kind of thing not because i don't like it but because i do I, I reconnected with some old friends of mine who were still playing in the same group that we formed in high school, but they were still playing Dungeons and & Dragons and uh, Pathfinder, and and I introduced them in through Masks, and they were hooked forever, and, 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 and then off into Apocalypse World, and they've never really gone back to, to playing these games for a while. It, with everything you've been telling me, what would you recommend here? Someone's listening right now, and they've got this... this quandary where they have a a gamer group or a community and all they want to do is adventures guild which is fine but they'd like to introduce them to new styles of play and new ideas new mechanics what would you feel be the 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 accessible games to kind of have on a short list to to look into all right so again uh going back to the the earlier discussion about uh tailoring descriptions of games to people's temperament it does help to to know the interests of the of the group that you're working with, right? Yeah, you because know, if they've if they've been watching a lot of MCU stuff, if they loved Spider-Man: Homecoming, like then you know that Mask is going to hit. But at the same time, um, a lot of people who don't have familiarity with comic books struggle to get involved with new Masks games, not because they hate all superheroes, but because a lot of Masks players tend to talk in terms of existing superhero universes. You made and a lot that, of references. Yeah, and that can be gatekeeping in its own way. So I think like having having a set of games at hand which cover a number of different genres and styles um, is going to be the most efficient approach. So, for example, when I go to a convention, if I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that convention, I bring Apocalypse World, post-apocalyptic, Dungeon World for people who really, really like that dungeon crawl experience, Masks for superheroes, Monster Hearts for, like, romance, and Urban Shadows for urban fantasy, and then my own game, Thousand Arrows, for the five people in the world who want to do historical Japanese tragedy. We're going to check that out. You okay. know? Yeah, we're absolutely going to check that out. All right, yeah, I'll, I'll send you. You guys should totally play it. Um, but yeah, like having a having a set of games at hand which covers a bunch of different genres is going to be uh, is going to be really really helpful. And yeah, definitely lean on free games here. Free games are often really good. Like there's Honey Heist, which is a one-page game about some bears stealing honey from a game convention, I think. You know, there's Lasers and Feelings. Lasers and Feelings, yeah. Right? And, like, a lot of 
of a lot of really good John Harper stuff. Uh, Lady Blackbird, you know, the one true one shot, which is sort of like a like a steampunk Firefly kind of thing, but ages better than Firefly. Um, <laughs> yeah, Lasers and Feelings, which is a like a sort of a comical low key uh, version of uh, you know Star Trek or some space show like that. It's very ours turned into a very Douglas Adams Star Trek. Yeah, that's that's a uh, that's a common place for it to go. Look at some of the really popular free stuff out there. Um, there's a set of games by uh, Epidia Ravical uh, called Vast and Starlit, um, which fit on business cards. So there's there's a game, and then there's three expansions, and each one of them is two business cards. And I just shove them in my wallet sometimes when I go to a convention. Uh, and they're this like sort of sp- sandboxy space exploration game. I'm always fascinated by the one page RPGs as, yeah. as, as, a, as a design challenge as well. To you have you have a single page to come up with your complete game, all your rules, and and design and layer it on the page in a way. I, like Lasers and Feelings is a great example of that in that it it not just tells you the story or the rules of the game, but also it really evokes the feelings that you're going to be enjoying for that game. And you can see just on that one page in a single snapshot, the game. Yeah. And uh, in others, um, there was one uh, that I, I wanted to try called The Mountain. It's all about a meditative journey up through a mountain. But oh, cool. the, the, the page itself is the map that you play on. Oh. The, like, like Fall of Magic kind of oh, thing. Oh, that's awesome. And, and, and so the rules are there, but so is the game board. And, uh, and it just the, the, the challenge of restricting yourself to... A single page to 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 create that game is is always uh, it's kind of fascinating to me. Like uh, um, the difference between doing a novel versus just a poem. And yeah, and the the other wonderful thing about uh, lightweight games like this is that if you don't like them, you have just lost. Just put it a, into a paper airplane and throw it. Across sure. The yeah. Okay. Well, you lost ten fifteen minutes of your time max, and now you can move on to something else, and that's fine. And like, whereas if you're you know, if you take a chance on Burning Wheel, I love Burning Wheel, but it's like taking a whole college class. Yeah. Uh, well, taking a chance on Dungeons and & Dragons and, yeah. and investing close to $100 just to get a starter yeah, pack. Yeah, like each, each one of those books is what, like $45 or something like that? Low investment stuff often means like low barrier to entry for both like both financial and time reasons, like not to mention, you know, diversity and culture. So yeah, like start light and then move up from there and, you know, it's much lower risk. So, Mendes, where can we follow you uh, beyond this interview and, and, and keep track of what you're up to and what you're doing and, uh, and, and your involvement in the community? Uh, sure. So uh, I go to a lot of conventions. Uh, I'm probably going to be at Big Bad Con this year. I'm probably going to be at Dexcon, uh, maybe PAX East. But uh, I also blog and write uh, you know, gaming resources at jamesmendezhodes.com. Uh, I am on Twitter at uh, Lula Vampiro, and we'll put the spelling of that in the description. Yeah, of click this. episode description. It's right there. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start a Patreon soon, so uh, look out for that. I'm also always really happy to answer personal, like, answer your questions about these things. So if you're wondering about any of the topics that I've just talked about, from cultural consulting to game choice to how do I convince my players to do something slightly different, get at me, like, message me. I want to hear from you. James Mendes Hodes, thank you so much for spending time with me. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of Breakout. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be a terrible warrior. (laughs) I can't wait to talk to you again. All right, peace. Special thanks to Breakout Con for giving us the space to be able to have that conversation. You can find out more about Breakout Con and when they're going to be coming back in 2020 at BreakoutCon.com. And if you'd like to keep tabs on James Mendes Hodes, you can find out more at JamesMendesHodes.com. Follow him on Twitter at LulaVampiro. We mentioned a few things throughout our conversation. 
games that he's worked on and other projects he's involved in, they're all included in the episode notes, so go ahead, open up the screen on your phone, scroll down to episode details, and have a little look around. And while you're in the neighborhood, why don't you leave us a five-star review on iTunes? Help this show become a little more exposed to a listener who's never heard us before. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Dice Warriors, where you can find out more about how the rest of this summer is going to go. Next week, we take a break from our breakout conversations to butt in line and bring in all of the conversations we just had last weekend at Gen Con. Our first in our series of Gen Con conversations is with Thomas Harrington from Free League Games, fresh off their six any wins with their work on Forbidden Lands and Simbarum. The Terrible Warriors normally is an actual play RPG podcast, and we are going to be coming back and playing games in the fall, and it's going to be a wild time. If you want to stay up to date and help support the show, be sure to follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash terriblewarriors. There is still an active community there hanging out on our Discord channel, and we're still running private games for them every month if you want to get up into that tier. Meanwhile, over on Twitch at twitch.tv slash terriblewarriors, every other Saturday we're playing with the Cambridge Chronicles in an ongoing Shadowrun campaign. Patreon supporters gain access to the archive of those streams, so if you want to get caught up, that's where you're going to have to go. And if you want to be able to join us live for one of those games, we'll see you every other Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time at twitch.tv slash terriblewarriors. And until we meet again next week, dear listener, thank you for making your game more welcoming for your friends that come to join you. Thank you for telling stories that have never been told before. Thank you for becoming a terrible warrior.